0: writer and consultant in the area of bias. I am your host with the New Books Network today, Ari Barbalat. I I have the honour today to to speak with Bronwyn about her new book, I Have Seen the Moon, Reflections on Nauru, available on Amazon and published in 2017. Bronwyn, it's an honour to be in dialogue with you today.
1: Thank you, Ari. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Thank you. Please tell us about yourself. What can you share with us about your education, your family, and your vocational work?
1: Um, well, I'm a baby puts me generationally. Um, I have an education background and also not-for-profit. Um, I moved out of, trained as a teacher, midlife, moved out of teaching, and started to work with the Salvation Army and became an ordained minister with them and now i have my own business as the bias specialist from a family perspective i have three adult sons two of them are married and i have six grandchildren five granddaughters and one grandson raging in age from 4 to 17 you know you're getting old when your eldest granddaughter is going to be 18 this year so that's a huge milestone for the family in terms of um, the work that i do Currently, um, so I'm a speaker, a writer and a consultant in the area of unconscious bias. So I work with um, peak sporting bodies, government departments, businesses uh, in terms of consulting and also um, in speaking to a variety of different audiences.
0: What inspired you to write this book?
1: It was my um, going to Nauru with the Salvation Army uh, in 2012 at that stage the Australian federal government entered into a partnership with the Nauruan government and the government of Papua New Guinea to re well to reopen on Nauru and to open on Manus Island in PNG some offshore processing centres for asylum seekers this was a uh, this policy was introduced as a means of um, as the slogan went, stop the boats, because people smugglers were bringing asylum seekers from Indonesia um, across to Australia and people were consequently drowning because these boats were flimsy at best. So using that, and I will call it as an excuse, the offshore processing centres were opened again and the Salvation Army was given the contract on both of the both Manus and Nauru to provide welfare services and the uh, I was some um, Salvation Army officers at the time working in Canberra looking after a, Ch- a Salvation Army church there and the um, email came around asking for volunteers to go for a month to help um, be part of the team there and I put my hand up not because I had a burning desire to work with refugees or to work in the tropics but because I couldn't think of a reason why not to. So it was one of those serendipitous decisions that we make that end up changing your life. And it was while I was there that I was confronted with a number of issues in my own life, things that I later come to understand were biases. And that was the start of the work that I do now.
0: In light of the content of your book, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you, before we begin, some of the content questions Hmm. To share your thoughts on the tragedy unfolding right now in Tonga.
1: Yeah, the, um, I think one of the biggest issues, I think, is one that, in a sense, something that I learned when I was on Nauru, is that white people, because we have technology behind us, we have, you know, we're, we're generally from developed countries, we have this sense that we know best that um, our way of doing things is the right way, is the uh, the best way. And um, that is what I think I'm concerned the most about now in response to Tonga. Now, obviously, the um, the underwater internet cable was broken because of the tsunami and so um, international communications were down but now that there's some way in being restored, my concern is that although we do have the facilities to provide a lot, and I know Australia and New Zealand are providing via their armed services, you know, large planes with supplies and personnel to go and help with the cleanup process. My concern is that we don't just go in and ride roughshod over what the Tongans want, that we actually listen to them. Because one of the um, Things that have come out is that Tonga has no COVID. It has never had COVID. It's this little island and they've been able to keep COVID at bay and what they're concerned about now is that with the personnel coming in from New Zealand and Australia, they may inadvertently bring COVID to Tonga. So that's a real concern for them. So I think it's really important that those of us who have the capacity to provide aid, that we also listen or maybe we first listen. What do they really want? What are their real concerns? And how can we mitigate the risks?
0: One passage that I was very much struck by in your book comes in chapter 25, where you compare and contrast the social world you grew up in in Australia with the social world you encountered in Nauru. Uh, You write as follows. On the one in one, I had relationships that were and still are precious to me with people I love dearly and who loved me. In the other world, I was part of something unique, challenging, and very significant. Such an opportunity to inhabit two worlds doesn't come along very often, and I, so I feel privileged to have been able to live and work this way. Inhabiting these two worlds was very challenging. It was easy to favor one over the other, to see one is more important than the other, especially when I was on island as the work there made me feel as though I was at the center of the universe, rather than on a relatively unknown island in in the, in the Pacific Ocean, working with people that my own government and many fellow Australians would rather forget. But each world impacted the other, the love that I shared in the one filled me up so that I could give fully of myself in the other. The people I worked with in the other expanded my outlook and deepened my capacity to love. What, what does it say about you that you are able to adapt so successfully in such a cross-cultural situation? And what character virtues in yourself can you identify that others can learn from?
1: Oh, look, that's a great question. Um, probably not one that I have given a huge amount of self-reflection to, because I think things that we are able to do or we seem to do naturally, we don't think about a lot but you've asked me to think about it. So thank you. In terms of how did I do that? I think the work that I'd already done with the Salvation Army in Australia had trained me to listen, to look for what others were about, not just, you know, what could I bring, but what was needed. So, um, by the time I'd been on the island for a few months, I had started to come to grips with some of my own biases, some of my own issues that I needed to work with. And I realised that the world is much broader than um, than I had previously experienced because not only was I working with um, asylum seekers from many, many different countries, but we also had... People on the Salvation Army team, not only from Nauru, but who had once been refugees, people from Africa and Ghana, in um, Ghana and uh, Vietnam, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq. So people who spoke different languages to me, people who had different faiths to my own. So I was learning. And I think because I had taken myself to task over my fairly narrow upbringing as a white Australian from a conservative Christian background, um, I'd allowed I'd allowed myself to be open. And I think openness is, um, is always a key. That said, I can remember way, way, way back decades ago, when I was first starting my teacher training and uh, someone commented, oh, I wouldn't like to have been in an argument with you Bronwyn, because you always see both sides. Mm. And I think that, so I think I've had an innate capacity to see other viewpoints other than my own. And so that really helped and it was only broadened, um, and strengthened by my, my time there.
0: One theme that comes up quite a bit in the book is you as a person of faith. Um, you write the following in chapter 27. I disagree wholeheartedly and vehemently with offshore processing and any form of long-term detention of asylum seekers and refugees. However, I believe God is bigger than any decisions that people make either collectively or as individuals. I believe it is no accident that Nauru is the site for the processing of asylum seekers. I believe this island may turn out to be one of hope for a better future, a better future prepared by the God who loves all people regardless of race, faith, or culture. So despite appearances to the contrary, Nauru was both an oasis of thankfulness and an island of hope. How often it is that what appears to be and what actually is, especially in God's economy, are often two completely different things. I'm I'm Jewish, and in the Jewish religious tradition, there's a tremendous attention paid to the question of theodicy for example all kinds of volumes have been written on the topic of where was god in the holocaust in light of your observation above and in light of being a person of faith yourself how, how can how can you respond to the question of where was god in nauru does the observation you make above answer that question how can Nauru and the situation in Nauru contribute to the ways that we think philosophically about where is God in trauma and where is God in atrocity?
1: Mm. They're some of the, those ultimate questions that, um, that people ask. I'll backtrack. When I was a Salvation Army officer in Canberra. I first um, I started to get to know a group of people um, at one of the um, at one of the pubs because as part of the salvos, you go around with your little collection box on a Friday night around to the pubs and clubs and things and collect money. And I got to know this group of people at a particular club. And I had this distinct impression that God was asking me not to talk about God, not to talk about my faith. Or anything. People knew I was the Salvo. They knew what the Salvation Army stood for, and I was just to be me and to trust that because as Christians we believe that the Holy Spirit is in us so that God resides in us and to believe and trust that the Holy Spirit in me was enough. I didn't actually have to be overt about my faith. And interestingly, conversations around faith often came up from the people in that group, they were never um, instigated by me. Now I took that understanding, and this is—I this bear with me as I come to where answering your question. I took that understanding with me to Nauru that there was a sense in which God in me went to Nauru that me as the person that I was, a person of faith, I was. There was a sense in which I was representing. I was bringing God's love, His compare, His kindness compassion into that place and that was regardless of whether i agreed with what was happening there or i liked the administration or uh you know i was dealing with people who were muslims or uh, catholic christians uh, protestant christians whether they were Buddhists, hindus zoroastrians didn't matter what they were i actually don't think we had any jews um, on no, that's interesting uh, but It was that sense that where is God? God was with God was in me. And so I was, I was bringing God to that place. Obviously, on Nauru, Nauru is a very Christian um, country. It had been um, colonized in from a faith term by some German missionaries. And so they brought um, Catholic, the Catholic faith there. But I think. To specifically answer your question, and that I, for me as a Christian person, um, that was the whole point of Jesus' life, is that he came and said, you know, I'm representing God on earth. You look at me, if you see me, you've seen the Father." he said. And uh, that's what, and so I think for those of us who, and I can only answer from my faith perspective, that that God is in me and so as I go to Nauru in the middle of all the difficulties, then God goes there um, as well. And and I can't speak for Jewish people, you know, because although Christianity has sprung out of Judaism, we do have some, some differences. But I wonder also, and maybe I observe this in the other people of faith, um, particularly the people of faith in our t- Salvation Army team, because some of the most godly people I met were, and I'm thinking of one particular beautiful, big black African man who was a really devout Muslim. He brought God to Nauru. The people who were Buddhists on our team and Hindus, they brought God into that space. So I think God was there in the people of faith and in the care and the love and compassion that they showed.
0: Thank you for sharing that um speaking of faith um in chapter 30 you offer an interpretation of the words of rumi the sufi poet rumi uh rumi as you quote him writes as follows shatter my heart so that a new room can be created for a limitless love and you then describe the blog post that you wrote um interpreting this this very line um I'll share part of it, shatter my heart, shatter that which is the essence of who I am, shatter shatter what lies in the very deepest part of my soul so that the shattering has purpose. It is not a random act, it is invited, it is not malicious, it is welcomed. A new room, a new place of living, a new place to dwell, a new receptacle for more. There is no place for the reconstruction of the shattered heart, for that is impossible as it is in pieces like the fragments of a glass bauble impossible to reassemble it can be created not built or constructed but created this is the creative a, this is a creative act a new shape altogether a totally new never before thought of space for a limitless lit- love a love unlike any that i have ever known only a new space Is able to house the limitless love. As I reflected further, I realized that in the shattering, there is a call to something bigger, a call to live by something bigger than I have known in the past, a call to live bigger than I have ever, than I ever have before, to live an expanded life. What did your experience in Nauru teach you about love?
1: Simple question. And I think the simple answer is I learned that love is practical. Love is about, love is not, yes, it's an emotion, but love must be shown. You know, the the words of, of Paul in the Bible say that, you know, love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful. It's not arrogant or rude. It, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. It never ends. So I think above everything else love is practical love has to be shown you know whether you're in um you know intimate relationship with a partner if you say i love you and yet your actions don't back that up then is it really love if we say we love our friends but we don't call them we uh you know uh, we don't take their phone calls or we just assume that they'll always be there, then is that truly love And I can remember, like, I grew up in a family where both our parents, both uh, mum and dad, I think maybe partly generational, they never told us that we were loved. They never said, I love you. And yet my mum showed her love for us in the way that she did things. Love came through her hands, you know she'd do the ironing for me when I was you know had a new baby those sorts of things so although you know I really really wanted um, because I'm a woman of words to have that sort of verbal affirmation um, learning to see love in the practical things was uh, was an important thing so yes I think love is a practical it must be practical it has to have a physical uh, outworking in in our lives regardless of no, whether we have faith or no faith, um, love is part of being a human being.
0: How did you find and create normalcy when you were in Nor- Nauru? What did normalcy mean to you when you were there?
1: Mm, that was great. I think normalcy comes from habits, patterns um, in our lives, you know. And certainly when um, I would to work, had six days, six days of work and then one day off. So there was always a pattern to my days. I think I worked 10-hour days. Other people were working 12. But, you know, the, the bus came at a particular time, so you had to be up and out the door, onto the bus, into the first meeting of the day, go and have breakfast, get on with your work. So I think those sorts of patterns from a work perspective. On my day off, I would go to Capelli's. Now, Capelli's was um, like a department store, sold everything though from meat and fruit and vegetables through to furniture and washing machines. So, but going there, there was a, you you could get soft serve ice cream cone. And as I sat and observed people, particularly the Nauruan people, and I always had sat days off, on a saturday morning i thought oh gosh this is like me going down the mall you know i could see people they would meet up around the takeaway food out there when the kids would get soft surf cone or they get some dim sims or whatever it was that they were eating and people were families going in and out with their trolleys and getting things so it was those in making those connections between what would i normally do back in australia and what was I doing here on Nauru? So, that, so it was about patterns, but then also seeing the connections between what would be normal back in Australia and what were some of the normal patterns that were on Nauru that I could relate to.
0: Wow. Right now, the Prime Minister of Australia is the very person who was the Minister of Immigration. Um, very much responsible for some of the policies in Nauru. Um, You have an observation about the 2013 federal elections in Australia where you write as follows. There was another aspect of this exchange for me having consistently supported the Liberal Party throughout my adult voting life. It's race to the bottom with Labour in the 2013 federal elections with regard to the treatment of asylum seekers, left me feeling completely betrayed. Here was a political party with which I resonated, but which was now displaying attitudes that were not only foreign to me, but foreign to that which I perceived were the values of this party. I felt betrayed, and have struggled since to align myself with any part with any political party. Um, what is your perspective on the 2019 elections? And especially since um, the world has been coping with the Afghan refugee crisis unfolding in recent months, And how has this been handled by the current prime minister? And what does this tell us about him? Has there been ever any evolution between the time when this individual was immigration minister or is there more continuity than change do you see any hope for change in Australia in regard to attitudes toward refugees?
1: Lots there okay I met Scott Morrison when I was on um, Nauru he came into the classroom when I was teaching and so um, I think I just made some comment to him but he literally just poked his head Uh, in the door. He returned to Nauru when I was there, when he was in, um, because when he first came, he was the shadow um, immigration minister because the Labor Party was in power and then um, the the Liberal Party won power in um, 2013 and he returned as the immigration minister then and he was the one who delivered the, the message to a particular cohort uh, of asylum seekers that you will never be resettled in Australia. That was the policy. And, again, that, was, um, that policy was put in place supposedly to discourage um, people smugglers so that, you know, people wouldn't think they could resettle in Australia. And, um, but to me, this was um, persecution by policy because these people, the asylum seekers, they'd already been through persecution. We had persecuted them further by putting them onto ta- ta- on Nauru and Manus Island, which is fine if you're an individual who's free to come and go like I was or if you grew up there. But, you know, the living conditions in the camps were, they were basically adequate, you know, but that's that's it. And then for him to be able to stand, I didn't see him, but I certainly asked people what was, what was he like, and it was legs, you know, feet apart, arms folded and, you know, deliver, deliver the sentence in a sense and then leave. So um, I initially felt sorry for Scott Morrison because he shared or said he shared the same faith as mine and I felt that his faith was being hijacked by the politics of his party. However, as I have watched him and particularly since 2019 when he's been Prime Minister, um, I, he certainly doesn't share the same version of Christian faith that I do because, um, you know, there's the whole, whole saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely and certainly um, Christians or people of faith are not, um, not exempt from power corrupting. And I believe that uh, that certainly happened in this case, that the, the whole idea of power has become more important to, than um, the compassion that um, the faith that he says requires. So has there been change? No. In many senses, he's become more entrenched in his um, outlook. He was also, apart from being Immigration Minister, he was, um, I think it was Home Affairs, I can't remember the, his actual title, but he was in charge of um, looking after people who are on welfare. That was his department. And he was quite punitive. um, Again, in that area and uh, certainly um, during the COVID times, his government has done some quite good things initially, but um, as the time has gone on, there's been less and less understanding that people are suffering and that the vulnerable and the marginalised in our communities, whether that's the marginalised because of um, faith or race, language, disability, age, you know, there's so many ways that people can be marginalised and vulnerable in our community. Um, He doesn't, he just doesn't get it. And he doesn't want, it's perceived that he doesn't want to get it either. He just is committed to the economy and those people who share His desire for a booming economy because an economy is power, but um, of course, don't have a booming economy if you don't have people who are healthy. Yeah, so that's. uh, So I don't have a great deal of hope while ever the Liberal Party is in power in Australia that anything will change in terms of refugees. And even even this morning, it's seven. It's early morning here, um, eight o'clock in the morning here in Australia. Uh, I had a. Uh, had a, a comment on, on LinkedIn about um, the conflation of illegal immigrants with refugees. And now our, gov- our government has literally done that with their messaging. So they basically said that asylum seekers are illegal immigrants. That is con- is not true. It's not true under Australian law. It's not true under international law, but it suits the government to use those terms. So that's those sorts of understandings are still uh, prevalent in, um, I would say, probably more than 50% of the community here. The, um, Unfortunately, the Labor Party also has a similar policy when it comes to asylum seekers. It's a bipartisan. Um, I think the Labor Party has better social policies and has a better understanding of people, but they haven't yet changed their asylum seeker policy. So unfortunately, for our two major parties, they both have the same view and until that changes on a personal level i can't vote i can't align myself with either of them which is a bit of a problem because you know that one or either one of them is going to get into um, into power the next time we have an election which will be later in this year so you are a bit between a rock and a hard place but people are vocal you know they're when um novak Djokovic was held in hotel uh, immigration detention he was in exactly the same hotel as where there have been 30 uh, refugees detained for over nine years so at least him doing that has highlighted brought that more to an attention will that change anything Yeah, you know cynic me says no but we can you know if we can just highlight continue to highlight what um, our politicians would prefer to forget that would be good
0: one individual I would be curious to ask you about who shows up in the book is Uzatala. What can you share with us about him? Who was Uzatala?
1: Mm. Yeah, Uzatala, uh, now he was a Hazara. He is a Hazara. Um, I didn't know anything about Hazaras, didn't know they existed. Hazara people are marginalized and persecuted people in uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And um, there were a lot of Hazaras in the cohort on Nauru. On about the, probably the first, my first full day of work on Nauru, so this is November, 2012, um, I was given a sheaf of maybe five or six papers that had a number at the top. Each of the asylum seekers was given a boat number and it would be three letters, followed by three numbers. So the three letters referred to the boat that they were on, the three numbers referred to their number um, on that boat. So you'd go down into the camp, you'd call out that number. Now um, the majority of people did not speak English, but there were a significant number who had a, a small amount of English some actually had quite good good English. So you know I'd call out something like, PAW 362, and, the, you know, that, that would get passed around because all generally the men um, congregated in, in, you know, in the communal areas, they would, you know, call that person over and then you'd have the interpreter, so the person who had some English would sit with you, you'd ask them the question, they would pass it on. And um, I didn't know it at this stage, but Azatala was on my list. But before I found that out, so I'm doing that. I've got, um, so I've got these six pieces of paper and a pen. And initially, one of the men found me a chair. Now, plastic chairs were pretty scarce. They They were prized, but somebody gave up their chair for me. And that is one of the things that I found was so common. I was treated with huge respect by all the men. Um, that, I, that I worked with and served. So here I'm, up, I'm sitting on the, on the chair, again, now trying to balance uh, six sheets of paper on my leg and right from my left comes a piece of flattened cardboard. Now the um, Nauru has no fresh water of its own. All its water comes in as bottled water. So the, um, you know, those plastic bottles of water were, were freely available to the men and the cardboard boxes were not thrown away. The men flattened them out and used them to sit on on the ground. So one of these cardboard boxes, flattened cardboard boxes, is given to me by this man I didn't know, but it turned out his name was Azatala. He saw that I had a need. I needed something to lean on. I was having trouble trying to write um, on the curve of my leg and he found something now I was incredibly touched by that because he had nothing he literally had you know just a few items that were in a safe storage he had his you know tracky decks and um, t-shirt and his thongs he had nothing to give me but what he could give he gave so he found something he saw what I needed. And so I went on and, you know, went through it, worked through my list and he happened to be one of the last ones on my list. And so I found out more about uh, Azatala. I was a few months later actually able to tell him how much that meant to me through um, an interpreter, one of the other uh, asylum seekers on the island. Now, interestingly, after the uh, Salvation Army contract came to an end, I returned to Australia, and got a new posting with the Salvation Army in Sydney. And the Salvos have um, in in Australia have a big fundraising day called the Red Shield Day. So I'm out um, in an area of Sydney called Boralla, walking up and down the streets, knocking on doors. And I hear this voice say, hello, teacher, because a lot of the men just called me teacher because that was the role I had had initially on the island. And there there was a Zuttleup. He was in this street, and so I was able to just go over to his home, see where he was living now with um, two or three other uh, refugees, and it was like I was brought full circle. So you know, this person who had had this influence on me on my first in my first week of working with asylum seekers on Nauru, I was now able to see that he was in Australia um, and settled safely. Interestingly. There are asylum seekers who have settled in Australia because they were under a different policy to the ones that Scott Morrison um, said, those you shall never be settled in Australia. So there's discrepancies in our own policies. Some asylum seekers are here, some are not.
0: Another individual I would like to ask you about is Mujahid. Uh, What can you tell us about him and his background and his personal story?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Mujahid I met um, in the classroom. So in that in the November two thousand and twelve, and he was one of the uh, people who did have some had good English. Now he uh, he was a teacher by profession, like I was. He had been um, principal of a school in Pakistan, and the Taliban had uh, wanted to persecute him. We're after him because he wanted to um, educate girls, which, you know, as we've seen um, in the recent uh, issues in Afghanistan with the Taliban, you know, they've cracked down on education for girls. It's not something that the Taliban want. So Mujahid fled Pakistan, uh, left his family, uh, his wife and uh, elderly parents and young children there and uh, wound up in Australia on Nauru and we met in the classroom and we clicked and I often thought that if I'd met Mujahid, um at, at a barbecue uh, here in Australia we would have become good friends so there was that connection However, uh, in those first uh, four weeks particularly, we were asked not to exchange personal details because, you know, I was going to return back to Australia. Didn't even anticipate really at that stage that I would be returning to Nauru in any capacity. Um, Mujahid wanted to exchange um, email addresses and I explained to him that I couldn't. And there, we were both really, really sad because we, we could have been friends. I felt like we, were all, we had the makings of friends um at that stage but of course I did return uh return to Nauru and was able to um continue um building friendship with my Jaid. one of the significant times for me was there was there had been a fire um in the uh in the camp and most of the buildings were um burnt down and the asylum seekers were re-traumatized before that and I met Mujahid outside the clinic one day and just sat next to him like, what do you say <laughs> to someone who's been in that situation? He had, and his eyes were sort of blank and he just said, they've taken everything from us. And so the depth of his loss there was huge. Now, Mujahid made it to Melbourne before I did. Um, he always wanted to come to Melbourne and so when he had was... Um, sent off the island and this again was part of our policies we couldn't have two groups of people on the island under different um asylum seeker policies so he he came to melbourne and um, he has been on a temporary visa for oh, i don't know eight years something ridiculous and um he has since uh, even though he has master's degrees here in pakistan he has retrained as a teaching assistant here in Australia because his degrees are not recognised, and he now works as a teaching assistant in one of the local Catholic schools in Western Melbourne, which is lovely. And we've we've met up and had coffee and um, and of course k- keep in touch by good old Facebook. <laughs> see, I see what he's up to. He loves cricket. He got to the MCG before I did, um, I, and I did ask him once. I said. If Australia plays Pakistan, who do you barrack for? It's in Australia, of course. So you know, it's um, it's it's just been uh, it's been lovely. Um, and the interesting thing about Mujahid, I said, because he's a, he's a, a Muslim, I asked him about jihad. I said, tell me about jihad. And for him, for his branch of Islam, jihad is a personal journey. It's about killing off the the negative things, the less than perfect, the less than healthy things in yourself. And I thought, gosh, I understand that. You know, Christians would see that as godliness, uh, the pursuit of godliness. People who don't have faith might, you know, it might be, you know, finding your higher purpose or connecting with the higher power and being the best self. So I like that understanding of jihad rather than the one that we sort of see the Taliban and ISIS playing out um, on the world stage.
0: Wow. In your perspective, um, in what way have you struggled with vicarious trauma in relation to Australia's policy in Nauru? Um, Mm. You write in the book, um, for me, the actions of my government in dealing with asylum seekers were and remain underhanded intentional abuse of vulnerable people. The treatment of asylum seekers and refugees is persecution by policy. We are not physically beating asylum seekers detained in both our onshore and offshore teachers, nor are we subjecting them to persecution as is commonly perceived and identified, but the government's continual tightening of the immigration policies, its determination to punish anyone who had the temerity to seek asylum by boat, its deterrence methods, of attaining people in Nauru and Manus Island are all forms of persecution of vulnerable and innocent people. We are persecuting them by our policies, the trauma of not knowing when it will end, the trauma of not being able to fight or flee persecution because it is not physical, the trauma of being a feeling of victim with no control, the sense of really being in the hands of others this I identify with. Um, can you speak to what you were describing in this paragraph?
1: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I have spoken with um, other Australians who work there, and I know for a number they actually have trauma from living through the with the asylum seekers, some of their experiences of because they were more intimately involved in the day to day sort of world um, of the asylum seekers than I and heard their stories, particularly those who were on the um, the mental health team. Um, they would hear those stories, and so they there was vicarious trauma for them as they listened to the stories of the asylum seekers. I didn't hear those story so much for me the trauma came with that sense that you spoke of earlier that sense of betrayal that I went naively as a white Australian who thought um who had always trusted my government i you know I'd seen uh areas of failure but on the whole I thought we were a good kind People, You know, we pride ourselves on the sense of mateship, on, on a fair go of sticking up for the underdog. And yet the policies that were being played out in terms of the asylum seekers and also even some of the things that d- the decisions that were made, like when I first met to Nauru in November 2012, there were only men, single men. Now, that doesn't mean they were not married. It was just that they were on their own. So they were the single men. Then by July 2013, um, when I think the Rudd government, oh, I can't remember whether it was the, but whichever government was coming in, they then wanted to bring families, couples, and then families and unaccompanied minors. We had two weeks to get a whole new camp together on Nauru. So that meant the company that was looking after the physical structure, you know, flatten the land, get the gravel down, put the tents up, get the cleaning in place, you know, all of that infrastructure that's needed to house people. The Salvation Army had to get together the welfare teams. The um, IHMS had to get together the, um, the medical teams. So, you know, Transfield, uh, Salvation Army, IHMS, the three main providers on, on the island at that stage, we had two weeks to get together a, a campsite to house another few hundred people. That in itself is traumatic. Yes. How do we do this? How do we bring all this together? You know, again at the at the mercy of our um, of our government departments and government policies. And that was the first time I'd ever been directly impacted by changes in government policy. So that for me was traumatic because I'm. I'm experiencing something that I've never experienced before, um, a, a lack of understanding from my government, um, uh, an arbitrariness from my government. But then also just as the Long I was there and could see how the policies were being played out in the lives, what that meant for the asylum seekers, there was a, a situation where each week um, we would have meetings, um, where the various providers in the island would talk to the asylum seekers about what was happening. And one man, um, Hussain, big bloke, huge hands, uh, he was sometimes in my class, he would, he said, he asked the the Department of Immigration official, what's happening about our refugee status? And the guy who, the, the official happened to be sitting next to me on the panel, he said, that's, That's not our responsibility. That's a responsibility for for the Nauruan government. Now, technically he was true, but what I saw was he was washing his hands of any responsibility, like the Australian government were providing the money, the services, the infrastructure, everything, but it was the Nauruan government who was going to be doing the refugee status, and I just, for the first time in my life, I felt ashamed to be an Australian. It was like... We have just we have sent these people here. We literally put them on the planes, took them off an Australian territory, and put them in another country, and then we say it's not our responsibility. That for me was personal trauma, and I find like, I'm really valuing the opportunity to talk about this because I don't often get the opportunity. Because particularly in Australia, people don't want to know. It's, it's not, mm. um, and and yet. I find it hard to. Actually, I'm doing quite well today because often I will get a weight on my chest. Wow. I will have still have a physical reaction when I talk about these things. So this is good. This is an indicator that I've actually have processed more than I did maybe. Isn't that earlier, so? A year or so ago. Wow. So that's um, that's good. Yeah.
0: It, it in in the same paragraph that I just alluded to. There's another. Section of it is actually just before what I had read, where you write So, how was I experiencing vicarious trauma? I had lived for years in a relationship in which passive aggressive behavior was a dominant reality. I call it death by a thousand cuts, nothing big or huge in any event, mostly small things, little words, neglect, withdrawal, turning away, a lack of engagement, a form of abuse. In what ways did you perceive a connection between what you? Had lived through, and what Australia's government was doing, and can you speak toward? Can you speak of what connection you were hoping to make?
1: Yeah. Oh, I was this. the The image that comes to mind is, you know, the um, the element mercury. You know, you can put it in a little blob on a table, and you push it, and it moves. It, it it's formless in a sense, um, and it. it Each time you try to touch it, it will move away from you. That's how I see both passive-aggressive behaviour and also the the policies here. Very hard to put your finger on it, to touch it, to bring it into focus and say this is wrong. When it comes to passive-aggressive behaviour, it it, it took me years to be able to even detail. examples that actually made sense it took me a long time to to recognize what they were and that what what they were was actually hurtful and i that's what i saw with this policy because on the surface oh we're trying to stop the boats we don't want people drowning at sea you know we're trying to send a message to those people smugglers that's the that's the image on the outside a similar that you know oh, we're doing something good over here Passive-aggressive people often come off as quite charming to to everybody else, you know, and you can't pick anything that's overtly cruel. And, And the same with our government policies. They're not on the face of them. They seem to be done for the best of intentions. But they are cruel because they don't help people. Like some of the people I mentioned in this book are still on temporary visas or safe haven visas. They cannot bring their loved ones to Australia. They will never be able to have permanent residency. So, you know, it's again in which they are in an uncertain environment. You can't, they're not being, you know, overtly punished for anything. Even the people who are held in detention, Oh, gosh, they're in a hotel. Well, they must be okay. You know, and people look in from the outside and go, well, why are they having mental health issues? You know, they're they're living in a hotel, have no access to fresh air. You know, they don't have, there's not many common areas in which they can walk around, not much access to um, exercise. They've been there for nine years in the same place, not allowed to go outside. It's those sense of covert actions, whether it's passive-aggressive, whether it's these policies. They're covert actions that are doing that yeah, that death by a 1,000 cuts. So a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here. Nothing overt. Nothing that you can necessarily charge anybody with, you know. You can charge someone with domestic violence who beats somebody else up or breaks their bone. You ch- can charge somebody with war crimes. But, you know, what's happening in both of those situations? It's just under the surface, just in the shadows very, very difficult, but very, very harmful.
0: Thank you for sharing that. In your book, um, in the final chapter, you have a poem called Injustice. What is its Mm -hmm. message? Uh, Now that many refugees from Nauru have been resettled elsewhere, what message does it send to the next generation of asylum seekers attempting to enter Australia?
1: Uh, Well, actually, I'll read it. Sure, please. And then um... I'll answer my question. Sure. Injustice stares at me, treads wearily with old shoes, shrugs into the same clothes, drapes over the edges of a stretcher, hangs limply in the humid heat, smiles tiredly at the sameness of each day, talks quickly through its allotted call, skin drinks, shorten showers, cries at false reports. Injustice. Constant companion of despair and tr- struggle. Injustice. Defeated by resilience and hope. And I think that last line is the one that I hang on to. Because injustice continues to prevail. Um, you know, the people who are still held in the Park Hotel in Carton in Melbourne, that's injustice. They're not being dealt with justly. The asylum seekers on, who are now refugees who have settled in Australia but are not allowed the normal pathways to permanent residency or citizenship. That is an injustice. They haven't, they're people of good character. They would pass our character test as being good Australians. You know, they're on the whole constructive, productive people and and are contributing to, to our society. The injustice is we say that we don't want them because they came, they had the audacity to get on a leaky boat and seek asylum in Australia. So injustice continues. Um, Although the images that I spoke about in that poem reflected what I saw in the um, asylum seekers on Nauru, there is still injustice in Australia. And I am a person who is, and I came to realize uh, this not long ago, I've been actually fighting injustice ever since I was a teenager. I didn't realise it, I think these are the things that you can look back over your life when you've lived a few decades and you start to see the patterns in your lives. So I will continue to do what I can to fight injustice, and particularly for asylum seekers, because I've experienced that these are now part of my personal um, journey. And as um, one songwriter said, Brooke Fraser, she said... Um, Now that I have seen, I am responsible. And I I remember those words because that's the truth. I've seen, uh, I've experienced. So there's a sense in which the responsibility is now passed to me. I can't unsee what um, I've seen. I can't unexperience the things that I've experienced. And so I have to come back to resilience and hope because there there are times where you just shake your head and you go, this is all too hard. How are we ever going to change things? And I look at our governments and, and our, our party policies and think, gosh, we've got such a long way to go. But, um, you know, I am a glass half full girl. I am, an, I am an optimist and I will continue to fight against injustice, whether that's by sending emails or being friends or talking on podcasts. And um, I will continue to do it.
0: Uh, you just alluded to how you cannot unexperience what you experienced. Um, That leads me to another question I wanted to raise, which is the story of the tragic fire that you saw with your own eyes. Uh, In chapter 14, you have um, a passage that reads as follows. Mujahid looked at me with with blank eyes and said, they've taken it all. Qasim Ali, the elder statesman of the Hazara, one of the cultural groups, which had be rounded up and taken to jail, was later released after having been found to not be involved in the riot and questioned the service providers on behalf of his group about their treatment in jail. Why did they do that to us? The man we nicknamed the Naughty Cowan because of his pre-fire cheeky flirting now sat at a community meeting fingering his prayer beads relentlessly The Christian pastor from Sri Lanka who had been arrested, taken to jail, but later cleared of all charges, and on whose face I read such shame when I visited him in the area set aside for those on bail. Sibyl Ray, who, after telling me something of what he'd experienced in jail, said to me, we have no family here, but you are here, and the fire changed everything, including me. Can you share the story of the fire? How did it re-traumatise the individuals you knew in the asylum community?
1: Mm. Um, I was actually back in Australia when the fire started, um, but was called back straight away. From what I understand from those who were on the island at the time, um, a, a group of um, asylum seekers did start some fires that got out of hand. Whether their intention was to burn the place down or not, I don't know. But that was the uh, that was the outcome. And this happened um, in the at night, as often these things do. And as um, you know, obviously the men are fleeing the fire. The uh, the Nauruan police rounded them up on the assumption they made an assumption that they were running away because they were guilty rather than because they were just trying to get away from the fire. So a lot of, um, a lot of the asylum seekers who had nothing to do with starting the fire um, actually um, ended up in, in prison for a week or more, which was not a pleasant um, experience at all. So that, in a sense, there was a sense in which they'd already fled persecution in their own countries and now, again, they were being, they were being rounded up and taken to jail, not treated terribly well and then having to come back um into a new place and you know of course we had to provide new shelters and all the other infrastructure when one was gone so yes there was a re-trauma re-traumatization for people who at this stage they were all all just men so this is june june july 2013 Um, men who already fled persecution you know um Rums and Ali, he still had a bullet in his leg. So, you know, people who still had physical trauma were now re-traumatised because they'd had to flee for their lives from from a fire that, um, you know, for most of them was was beyond their control and which they had nothing to do with. But they were re-traumatised. The staff were traumatised. It became a difficult time because after that, we um, we actually, the Salvation Army, had to decide which people would be the most appropriate in terms of their staff to keep on the island and which they didn't want to have back because the whole situation had changed. It was a much more now trauma situation and a lot of the staff found that very difficult because they were hugely invested in the work but for whatever reason they were not deemed to be the best people. To be in this particular situation and that for them was quite traumatizing too that was really hurtful they invested themselves in this and now they can no longer help those who did stay they were on the front lines of dealing with traumatized people having to care them, listen to their new trauma stories so yeah it was a time of um, particularly for those of us providing welfare um, a time of great trauma but the majority the biggest trauma was was those who'd been um in uh, who were the asylum seekers and that went on because the men who were bailed uh they were put in a separate um uh um camp and they were there for literally there for months they had to uh, they had to go to um court and oftentimes I would go to court and sit with them there as a as a support person so it wasn't just a case of uh, them saying that they were innocent actually had to have legal arguments so it's quite a long process again another traumatizing process um, as well to uh, to do that
0: what can you tell us about wildlife in Nauru as you saw it with your own eyes?
1: Mm, there isn't any. There are actually no native animals on Nauru. There are dogs, but they're not natives. And that was one of the interesting things. There are, there are birds, but there are no actual no native animals. And whether that has to do with the fact that there's no fresh water on the island, um, I don't know, but I would imagine that has something to do with it. But The dogs on Aru they hunted in packs, so they were not pet dogs. Um, We were all (laughs) uh, suggested that we take a a good strong stick with us when we went out walking to fend off the dogs, and some of our staff were attacked um, at different times. Now, um, in terms of the wildlife, the birds, there were two types of naughty birds, black ones and white ones. The white ones were considered sacred. But the black ones, they could catch and eat. And, uh, and I did have naughty birds. I had to try a naughty bird. They're tiny little birds. And once they've been, um, you know, t- plucked, they would, and they've got long, sharp beaks because they're, uh, they're fishing birds, like they, they, they're seabirds. They would bend their little necks back and stick the neck in their back. Then they'd cook them and they'd cook little, you know, in rows. Um, they're very fishy. To, to taste but then there's also um another group of birds i forgotten what they're called i'll just have a quick see if i can uh, find them but they they used to fly these birds they would tame them and then be able to um tie a um a rope around their legs and so fly them a bit like kites but they used them for fishing um as well so they were quite yeah so from that perspective they, they were the only sort of birds that um that i came across you know no parrots no you know other colorful birds and of course beautiful sea life i had the pleasure of being able to go fishing with um uh, a man called Caruso, and he caught us a, ba- uh, a barracuda, which we were able to have for, for dinner, which was fantastic. And um, of course, you know, a number of the uh, the locals would go spearfishing and come back with octopus and fish. All oh, sorts be- of wow. beautifully coloured fish. Yeah. So it was um, it was fantastic.
0: What were beaches like in Nauru? There are many images of beaches (laughs) in the book, but can you describe what it feels like to be on a beach in Nauru?
1: Yes. Yes. Um, Coming from Australia where, uh, you know, we have swathes of beautiful beaches. um, Nauru, because it's a, I don't know whether it's volcanic, but, you know, it has that typical um, island shape, you know, hill in the middle, uh, beaches around the edge, but a lot, has a lot of limestone limestone outcrops and it was the phosphorus that they could get from between the limestones that um, was very uh, profitable for Nauru. So there are limestone outcrops all around the shoreline um, of Nauru. So you literally can't go out. Uh, there's, I think there's only one beach. There's actually a surf beach and it is um, it has lovely sand. But for the rest... You've got to dodge the rocks and the, and the outcrops of, um, uh, of limestone you know, in the water. So we tended to, we had a place which we called the wallow. It wasn't very deep, but we would go down there after work and just sit in the water and allow the water coming in and out to just relax us and uh, get uh, allow some of the stresses of the day wow. to just drift away. Wow.
0: Wow. Um what was the relationship like between the Salvation Army and other organizations providing assistance on Nauru? What kind of tensions or conflicts or turf conflict, turf competition may have taken place among them? And what did you observe about it in in this capacity?
1: Mm. Well, um, my... Overall feeling was that the Salvation Army were the whipping boys. We were blamed for lots of things because we were providing the welfare services. So we were, the, you know, we were the do-gooders, the goody-goodies, the softies. We were on the side of the asylum seekers. We were, um, we were supportive of them. Many of the people um, in the other service providers did not take that view. They saw the um, asylum seekers as requiring punishment. They would look after them, but they, they didn't like them. They thought Australia was doing the right thing, putting them into offshore processing. And if they didn't come to Australia, that would be fantastic. And, and so the, the Salvation Army had a different attitude. Later on, Save the Children uh, joined when the children uh, started to come onto Nauru and they needed to be, um, uh, you know, schooled and looked after and they too became um, the whipping boys for the other uh, more powerful organisations. So that was difficult. Uh, I was the only, as it was pointed out to me, you're the only real salvo on the island because I was the only, uh, you know, commissioned officer. Everybody else, even though some of our staff, were part of the Salvation Army as um, as members. The majority had nothing to do with the Salvation Army. They were employed um, as employees, and although they uh, many absolutely absolutely fantastic people who um, stood by our values, which is what we asked them to do. But um, uh, so I would personally was respected um, and and reasonably well liked by the other service providers, but the uh organization as a whole, I think was just seen as uh, you know, are you just goody goodies, you're a pushover, you know, you listen to all their sob stories, that sort of thing.
0: What was the culture like within the salvation army during your time in Nauru? Um one theme that comes up in part of your book is the sense of being alien in your own organization. Um can you speak to that?
1: Mm. Yeah, and I think it's because of just what I've said. Um, I was the only Salvation Army officer there. The, um, the work on, on Nauru that the Salvation Army did was run from a business perspective, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we had people in charge who did not have the same perspectives as, as the Salvation Army did necessarily and that made, that made things difficult for me from time to time because sometimes my faith perspective was not uh, respected. And um, I felt like I was working for an organisation that I didn't know because what the Salvation Army looked like on Nauru was very different to what the Salvation Army looked like um, in Australia. So, so there was that sense of, of, of alienation for myself that I just, needed to, I was aware of it, and I just needed to manage that um, for, for myself.
0: Wow. Um, how did Nauruans perceive Islam, and how did Muslims view Nauruans? Can you comment on the cross-cultural mm. interactions between local Nauruans and Muslim asylum seekers in Nauru?
1: Mm. Well, while I was there, there wasn't actually a huge amount of um, interaction because the asylum seekers were kept within fenced off, uh, the fenced-off camp and they didn't actually um, really, um, they didn't go outside of that, except if they needed to go to hospital. So there wasn't a lot. The perception of the, of the Naruans of the Muslims, um, I had the best uh, example of that was uh, in, I suppose, about June 2013, I was with them in a meeting of Nauruan pastors who had some concerns because at that stage they were hoping, you know, the policy on was that they were hoping that the um, asylum seekers would be able to then start mingling in the community. And and there was a concern from the pastors, given that, you know, 80% of the island um, attended church, they were concerned that these Muslim men would, um, like their women, would take them away from their faith. Um, they didn't actually know much about Islam um, at all. Only you know some maybe more um, uh, salacious <laughs> things that you know come out in the in the media. So um, I, I was able to take their um, their concerns and try and speak to those. One that I I thought was very telling. You know, one of the guys said, oh, look, I, I you know shook hands with um, with one of them, and then he wiped his hand off on his chest." And I thought, oh, he didn't wipe the headstake off on his chest. He just put his hand to his heart, as Muslims often do. And I thought that was just that um, misinterpretation of what for a Muslim man is a perfectly natural gesture, Gesture, but is a strange gesture from, uh, from a Nauruan perspective. In, uh, in other ways, I, the um, local Catholic priest came and did services every Sunday so there were a lot of um, Catholic Christians um, in the asylum seekers, particularly from Sri Lanka. So they would um, they would come and uh, do their services. There were also Christians um, on the um, in the uh, the asylum seekers who were not Catholics. And one of the local um, uh, ministers he came and he became. Um, Pastor Richard, he became a really regular in the camp, holding Bible study groups and and services. And one of the most beautiful um, connections was at Christmas time in two thousand and thirteen. Uh, one of the local choirs, because Pacific Islanders um, have the most beautiful voices and harmonise beautifully, and they came and sang some Christmas carols to uh, in the in the various camps. And in the single men's camp, they've got all these men. Now, most of them are Muslim, so they don't celebrate Christmas, but, you know, anything to get out of their tents, and, you know, see something different. So they are all these men crowded in to the, into the tent um, and, you know, the, the choir sings a few carols and then they sing Little Drummer Boy and, the you know, the chorus goes Rumpa pump, pum pum wow. The men picked up on that and all the men, Started to sing like it reverberated around the tent, rumpa pum pum, rumpa pum pum. And you could see the looks on the faces of the choir. They were quite taken aback and a bit worried. But all the men were doing was joining in, in what they could do. And for me, it was just the most amazing, um, amazing experience seeing the way the human beings take whatever opportunities they can to connect with each other even when they don't understand the language or the faith they take the opportunity to connect but that connection wouldn't have happened except this choir made the choice to bring their gift of singing to people that they didn't know wow
0: you alluded to uh the now ruined pastors that you interacted with and some of their concerns about the cross-cultural aspects of the situation in Nauru. What was your perspective on Nauruan Christianity? What can Australian Christians learn from Nauruan Christians? Was there anything unique about Christianity in Nauru that made an impression on you?
1: Um, I think probably, um... Well, they're very, they're very conservative people. They have very traditional values. Um, and, for example, um, as a woman, I was encouraged not to go swimming just in my swimming costume but to wear shorts and a T-shirt over the top. So there's a sense of, of modesty there. And even the men wore T-shirts over their board shorts. Um, so, that, so there's this heightened sense of modesty there so yeah very traditional values very traditional christianity um now again i think people are people you know obviously there are differences in cultures and cultural perspectives but i think within the, the christian groups on on Nauru, there was the same mix as there are here in australia there were the people who were skeptical and the people who were open the people who are welcoming, the people who put themselves out like Pastor Richard, who, who saw this as an opportunity to connect with people and other people who didn't want to be involved at all. So there was just the, the usual gap of human nature um, on Nauru as there is um, in, in Australia.
0: What was Nauruan generosity like? And can you paint a portrait of examples of now ruin generosity that you personally observed or that you personally experienced?
1: Um, I think the generosity is in the couple of things that I've already spoken about. It was the, um, and I won't say that that's necessarily across the board. Again, you know, it comes back to individuals and I believe individuals um, own generosity. You know, the people who shared their time, the people who... Showed compassion. The people who came into the camp as regular visitors who got to know the asylum seekers as people, not just as a you know a lump of humanity. The people who shared um, their gifts, you know, of, their gifts and, of singing. Um, that that was the the generosity that I saw. I was certainly welcomed into their churches, um, you know, in their vibrant uh, churches of music and song and dance and that was wonderful as well so they in a sense they were sharing uh, of themselves
0: On that note as we as we bring this interview to a close one final question I'd like to just ask you is do you have another book in mind and if not what are you spending your time invested in um, now that this book is behind you
1: mm. Well the the uh, the answer is yes and yes. Um, I I wrote a book last year which I will be publishing this year through Ingram Spark, um, and it's a book about bias and how bias shows up in the workplace and how we can address right. it. So it's going to be called What's Your Water? Wow. Um, that's based on an old Chinese proverb that says a fish is the last one to know what water is. So mm. I in my work I help people look for what's their water, what are their biases. So that book will come out um, in the first half of this year. And I'm also uh, in the the final throes, I hope, um, of putting a research proposal together to uh, start doctoral studies this year, looking at a theological exploration of the connection between bias and shame. So those two things together are going to keep me busy, along with my other speaking and consulting work for, for a little while to come
0: amazing extraordinary thank you for sharing thank you for sharing this with us and thank you for all the knowledge erudition and experience that you shared in dialogue with me and with our listeners during this interview and during this conversation i've been absolutely inspired by everything that you have shared and it was the highest honor to read your book and communicate with you today
1: oh thank you so much ari um i don't often get the opportunity to speak about my time on Nauru. So I have very much valued uh, this time to speak with you.
0: Thank you. I'm wholeheartedly grateful. Thank you. To our listeners, this has been Bronwyn Williams, the author of I Have Seen the Moon, Reflections on Nauru, available on Amazon and published in 2017. I am your host, Ari Barbalat, With the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. Bronwyn, thank you for your generosity today.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ari.
0: Thank you.